This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. This session was had a long name to a disease location risk assessment. I changed it to simply when you need more information. We have four. We were supposed to have four doctors participating. Just to show you that sometimes doctors make mistakes. Tom Hope is at Mission Bay, and not here. Uh, so, uh, but all of us are very familiar with the uh, PSMA uh, PET fluciclovine. And what we'll do here is we'll have Felix show Tom slides. We have extensive experience. We're bringing a PSMA PET to the FDA. We can talk to you about it. So Felix will fill in for Tom unless he gets here. Uh, on time. So I thought I'd talk about when you need inf more information, and the questions are oftentimes assessment of the, the, of the extent of the cancer and treatment recommendations are made on limited information. I see this all the time. Things like cancer grade PSA, not all the things we've been talking about this morning. And the question is, are there additional tests that may be of value to you? Uh, and. Uh, You've just been diagnosed with prostate cancer. What additional evaluation may, may be of value? I'm going to have Matt Kuberberg talk about slide review, risk assessment, uh, and imaging of the primary tumor. Felix will follow him and talk to him in a little bit more detail on when to do a genomic test. And then Felix, if Tom isn't here on time, will talk to you about novel imaging. So Matt, why don't you come on up? Thank you. All right. So to begin with, I do want to reiterate a few points that Peter made in the first talk, which is that the management of prostate cancer really begins with adequate risk assessment of prostate cancer. And this really has evolved over the years. Uh, you'll still very commonly see these low, intermediate, high risk designations used. Um, the latest guidelines from the NCCN, the AUA, have now added this very low and very high risk groups. They're now also substratifying the intermediate risk group into the so-called favorable and unfavorable categories. Uh, the reality is this has gotten more and more cumbersome uh, and not necessarily more usable or accurate. Um, and and frankly, it's hard for even people that I think wrote the guideline to remember all the different criteria that are in each of these boxes. And it doesn't really perform as a linear scale, meaning that you can go from very low to low, low to intermediate, and it's never really clear what exactly the implication of that is. Uh, so the CAPRA score, which Peter showed at the beginning, was really intended to be something that can be done almost as easily as the risk groups without software, without paper nomogram tables. Uh, but this does perform as a linear scale. What that means, this is a 0 to 10 score. You get up to four points for your PSA. Uh, one point if you have a secondary pattern, four or five, which would now be a Gleason grade group two. If you have a Gleason grade group three to five, meaning a primary Gleason four or five, that's three points. You get one point if it's a T3A tumor, meaning that we can feel tumor outside the edge of the prostate. One point if you have more than a third of the biopsy course positive, so out of a 12-core biopsy, for example, five or more positive, and then one for being over 50. Um, and on the 0 to 10 scale, every two-point increase is about a doubling of risk. So going from 1 to 3, from 2 to 4, from 5 to 7, consistently across the scale is about a doubling of risk. We group these such that CAPRA 0 to 2 is low risk, 
three to five is intermediate, and six to ten is high risk. But there is granularity within those categories. So, uh, and we're using this to help select men for surveillance versus active treatment, for example. Um, and we can do this quite well. So, yes, this is another Kaplan-Meier curve. And again, just to reiterate what this is saying, you want to stay at the top of the graph here. Okay. So as time marches on along the x-axis, right? This is out to 16 years now. Um, if this is 100% survival, this is 0% survival, and each of these lines, each of the curves here, is a different level of risk by the CAPRA score. So if you've got a CAPRA zero tumor, you stay at the top of the curve. Nobody with a CAPRA zero died in this large capture registry, which is men treated all over the United States, um, out to 15 years. Whereas if you've got the worst score, CAPRA 10, um, over half, you know, half of the men had died of prostate cancer by eight years, which is quite quick. So we can do this quite accurately. This is about 85% accurate. So if you ever read these statements from the US Task Force and others that we can't tell the indolent from the aggressive prostate cancers, it's just not true. And this is the basics. This is the, what we have at a glance at the chart um, at the point of care for every man with a prostate cancer diagnosis. And there's a lot more that we can do now, too, for free with what's available in the chart. We look at things like PSA density, which is the PSA related to the size of the prostate. Because you can have a high PSA just because you've got a lot of BPH, inflammation, other things going on in the prostate. So a bigger uh, prostate will allow us to effectively write off a higher PSA level. And that's what PSA density gets to. We're looking more and more at the extent of biopsy involvement. So um, yes, you may have two cores out of 12 positive. Do we just see a speck of cancer in those cores? Or do we see the cores completely replaced with cancer? And how much pattern four is there? You can be called a three plus four with anywhere from 5% to 49% of the cancer being pattern four. And we're learning uh, more and more across multiple studies, multiple institutions, that that extent of pattern four really matters. And definitely looking at the subtypes like cribriform, uh, which Peter talked about earlier, do add additional information. Now, to get a lot of this really does require slide review at an academic center or center of excellence. We do this routinely here, as do most other academic centers. Um, it's uncommon that our pathologists are going to come back and say this is not really cancer uh, or a major change from a Gleason 3 plus 3 to a 4 plus 5, but it's not that uncommon that we'll see a change in grade from a 3 3 to a 3 4 or a 3 4 to a 3 3, and that really can have a major uh, impact in terms of treatment options. And the other point I want to make is that imaging really needs to be done at high volume, high quality centers, whether we're talking about ultrasound or MRI. Um, and that's the next question. The question always comes up, do we need to do additional imaging? Bone scan CT really only apply for men with more aggressive prostate cancers. They're still very commonly done for anybody with a diagnosis. It's a waste of time, resources, radiation, and false positives. Uh, unless you've got a high-grade cancer or a very high PSA, you don't need those tests. Now, multiparametric MR, we are doing more and more. It gives us a look at the lymph nodes, but it's also a good way to look at the tumor itself and, uh, and give us a sense of the extent of the cancer and whether it might be outside the edge of the prostate. And then PET scans we will be talking about. These are gradually replacing, I think, bone scan and CT as more sensitive, better ways to look at the, uh, at the whole body. Uh, now, for all the talk about MRI, if you go to our annual meeting, the American Neurologic, I think you would come away with the impression that everybody with a prostate needs an MRI at least once a year, and then we will have no problems with prostate cancer. It's not that easy. And the fact of the matter is doing a good ultrasound is still absolutely the first uh, requirement. Um, and it's important that the biopsies be done well. It is not at all uncommon that a man comes in with what looks like a low-grade cancer here, 
and we find something much more significant. Uh, sometimes we see that because of imaging, but just as often we see it just because of where the tumor is. And focusing on the anterior part of the prostate here, on the far lateral zones, these are, these are um, diagrams that uh, Katsuro Shinohara here published years ago um, and has been part of our standard practice here for many years. And the better you do the ultrasound and the better you look at the truss, actually the lower the incremental value of the MRI. There's a couple big trials that came out really suggesting that MRI should play a role in um, really early in workup of prostate cancer. These are both UK trials. Based on these, the UK is now putting in this, this protocol whereby if you have an elevated PSA, you get an MRI. If your MRI is clear, you don't get a biopsy. Um, and I actually don't necessarily think the data are ready for that. The, the PROMS trial, which was the, the, uh, had a better gold standard here, missed, they missed about 25% of the high-grade cancers if they had not biopsied anybody with a negative MR. And the other real issue with MRI that does not get talked about nearly often enough is inter-observer variation. This is a study from Stanford, which is you know, a good MRI center. They don't have quite the volume experience that we do, but it's certainly a very good academic center. Uh, they looked at the individual radiologist calling out the MRs. And if you looked at the PIRADS 5 reads here, I'll, I'll show you PIRADS in a second, but PIRADS is basically a one to five grading system whereby PIRADS 5 is supposed to indicate a high confidence that we've got a high-grade cancer there. Well, the likelihood of finding a high-grade cancer on biopsy ranged from 40% to 80%, depending on which of these nine radiologists read the scan. And that's a lot of variation within a single academic center. Um, and like I said, the first step is doing a good ultrasound. This is typically what we see on MRI. We look at these different sequences. T2, so-called T2 imaging kind of looks at the anatomy. Diffusion-weighted imaging, which is the, always the fuzzier looking one. Uh, we're basically looking at cellular density here. We're seeing less water in the tissue, and that's why we see these dark spots. So this is kind of a typical tumor, what it looks like on T2 and diffusion weighting. But the fact is we can see this same man, same tumor perfectly clearly. This is my ultrasound uh, from the day of the biopsy. So again, with good, good equipment and experience, we can still do a lot with ultrasound alone. And the thing with pyrides is you spend you know, 30, 40 minutes in the magnet. We no longer require the endorectal coil here, which is wonderful to use to, I think, anybody that's been through the older version of it. Um, for all that time and invasiveness or not, uh, the computer then effectively dumbs down all that information into a grayscale picture that we look at, the radiologist, and you give it this one to five scale, and then we effectively dichotomize that and say positive or negative. And we're losing a lot of information along the way. Uh, so there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of interest at UCSF and some of the, actually the companies that we're working with in Silicon Valley to try to come at this with a machine learning approach to do better. So you know, the thought is in 2019, a high quality MR can augment but not replace biopsy. Um, and actually Dr. Hope just got here, so we will hear from him about PSMA PET in two more minutes. Uh, in the meantime, Dr. Feng is going to uh, give us an overview of the markers. And the last comment I want to make about MR and, and PET is that these really are biomarkers, and they play in the same space as the tissue markers and the blood markers, and really need to be considered by all the same criteria. Um, so with that segue, Felix. Thank you. Um, I was ready to give Tom's talk as well. We're, we're, a, we're a very integrated program. We've always joked that we could probably give each other's talks. I was, you know, I, uh, Peter could give the talk on radiation, no problem. Um, so today uh, I'm going to talk about genomics. And this diagram here basically is meant to show that there's actually a number of different molecular tests uh, that are now uh, available at various stages uh, of diagnosis and or treatment uh, for patients uh, with prostate cancer. Um, and it's actually overwhelming how many tests there are and so forth, but um, uh, as Matt mentioned, there's multi-parameter MRI, 
But now I'm going to talk about the four assays uh, that are actually reimbursed by um, Medicare, Polaris, Decipher, Oncotype, and Promark. I'm going to just very briefly touch upon each of them. I, I, I could talk about this for quite a bit longer, but I won't. Um, and talking about these four different tests complements what I talked about in the morning session on genetic testing for germline alterations as well. Um, so the first thing to talk about is Polaris, and they have a, a score called the CCR score. And what they did in a, a, a recently on a study was basically to look at these CCR scores in men with less aggressive prostate cancer shown in blue versus men in the entire spectrum of, of patients with prostate cancer, and they came up with a threshold. And then they basically looked at um, the chance of dying from prostate cancer based on this molecular score. And you can see that actually men with very low risk actually had uh, uh, no chance of dying from prostate cancer versus the, the different outcomes. Higher in this case is worse. Uh, you know, in men with higher scores. And, you know, it's been shown that this adds to clinical pathologic features. The other, another test is the Oncotype GPS score. This is made by Genomic Health. And um, this is a table that basically is meant to show you that um, the GPS score continues to add even when you start factoring clinical features that we have like age and PSA, clinical stage, biopsy, and uh, what uh, Peter and Matt have pioneered, CAPRA, which integrates them all, continues to add. And so I think the point is that the molecular tests add to the clinical variables. And in this case, this was to pre predict which patients would have upstaging of um, uh, pathology, so more aggressive prostate cancer found after surgery uh, when predicting before any treatment was done. Um, and um, uh, Peter and Matt have shown uh, this figure before, and I think Dr. Nguyen will show this later. But basically, here what you can see in the different colors is patients with different CAPRA scores. And remember, CAPRA is an integrated tool that takes together clinical and pathologic features uh, to predict uh, the, the, the aggressiveness of a prostate cancer. But even within the same CAPRA score as shown here, having this molecular test, the GPS, gives you a little bit more resolution even within that CAPRA score of who has more aggressive versus who has less aggressive disease. Um, now that being said, you have to be really careful with these genomic tests, and so these little printouts here are actually the reports that we get when a patient gets one of these tests. This is the GPS score, and I'm not going to go into too much detail, but here you have a patient who has a high number of positive cores, a higher PSA value, a higher CAPRA score, and yet he's listed on the report as having low risk um, compared to somebody who actually has much better features and is listed as having intermediate risk. And so these genomic tests, you actually need a physician to help you interpret them. Um, here's the test Promark, recently uh, uh, reimbursed by Medicare, uh, that actually looks at a bunch of different proteins. And if you want to compare and contrast when to use these tests, you know, we'd be able to, glad to go over that in greater depth. Um, and the last test I want to talk about is Decipher, which actually, of all these tests, probably has the greatest utility in the post-treatment setting, meaning men who have had surgery. Um, but, you know, we've shown, we and others have shown that in the pretreatment setting, uh, Decipher also works to look at, you know, predicting how, how what, the, what the rate of metastasis might be. Um, but after surgery, uh, it's also been shown that even when you look at different uh, clinical features, you can't see them here, uh, Decipher continues to add to them in terms of predicting who will have metastasis and who won't. And so I think that's quite uh, important. Now, one interesting part about Decipher is that Decipher comes with something called the Decipher Grid, if you, if you get it at UCSF. 
And it turns out that the Decipher platform actually, even though the Decipher test is comprised of 22 genes, the Decipher platform actually measures the expression of 1.4 million distinct RNAs. And so if you order the Decipher grid, they give you literally eight pages of genomic data, all these different tests. And nowadays, I think, uh, for the first time, I'm starting to see patients just so that I can explain the grid to them. Um, and uh, in all honesty, much of the grid is, uh, the vast majority of the grid probably isn't clinically useful, but some parts of it are. Um, and so just to answer the question, how is assessing tumor genomics useful? It adds to conventional clinical features in predicting aggressive versus non-aggressive disease. And how do we use it? We actually use it to help decide whether to intensify therapy sometimes in terms of you know, early post-operative radiation versus holding off on radiation in somebody who's had surgery with aggressive features, you know, sometimes giving radiation alone, radiation plus hormone therapy. And so um, the way I view it is that sometimes I use it as a tiebreaker if kind of we're in the gray zone based on the clinical pathologic features, the genomics can push me one way or another. And so with that, I'd like to transition to Tom. Uh, um, and we're very glad that Dr. Hope could drive across town in less than 15 minutes. <laughs> I'm, I'm equally glad that we're late. <laughs> so in the uh, negative five minutes that we have left, I'll quickly talk about PET imaging for prostate cancer. How many people here have actually had a PET imaging study for prostate cancer? Okay, so maybe about a fifth of you. Okay, so I'm going to talk about two agents in particular. The first is this drug called fluciclovine, or Oxymin. It's FDA-approved in patients with biochemical recurrence after definitive therapy, or prostatectomy or radiation therapy. And it was approved in 2016. And it's an amino acid radio tracer. And here's an image of a patient who has local recurrence. You can see if the cursor does work. There's a little bit of focal uptake right here in the bed of the prostate. You see this is the PET image showing that uptake there. And the CT scan shows a little enhancing nodule consistent with local recurrence in a patient who had a prostatectomy. So that's how you would use this to localize where the recurrence is so that maybe someone like Felix someday could aim external beam radiation therapy at that site of disease to try to potentially cure a patient moving forward. Now, Fluciclovine has some limitations, in particular in the prostate after radiation therapy. It has a low specificity, so if you've had radiation therapy, recurrence within the prostate is difficult. Um, it has a fairly low sensitivity in patients with a low PSA, and I'll get into that in a couple slides when we talk about PSMA PET. So here's an example of an image from a patient with a PSMA PET, and same type of thing. We're looking for black dots, right? So here's a humeral metastasis, and this here is a left internal iliac nodal metastasis, so we can see nicely soft tissue and bone metastases at the same time. And so hopefully someday uh, in the near future we'll be able to get one imaging study instead of getting a bone scan, a CT, an MR, a PET scan, all these different imaging studies simultaneously, get one single staging study. Now, I do want to take a second to talk about PSMA versus fluciclovine. So here's an example in the same patient being imaged within a week of each other. You can see there's a little bit of abnormal uptake in the top row here on the fluciclovine. There's a little bit of blackness. But if you look on the PSMA PET, there's much more uptake in that region. It's much more easy to interpret that that's actually recurrent disease, in this case, in the seminal vesicle after radiation therapy. Now, this was a study that hasn't yet been published, but it's accepted in Lancet Oncology, where UCLA compared fluciclovine to PSMA 11 PET. And the key point here, the yellow bars here are PSMA, and you can see overall there's a, a little over double the detection sensitivity with PSMA PET compared to fluciclovine. And also note that fluciclovine found no evidence of metastatic disease in any patients. 
okay? And really the only place that saw disease was in the prostate. And as I just told you, fluciclovine sort of overcalls has a low specificity in the prostate. And so it's really pretty clear in my mind now, when now that we have head-to-head comparison, that PSMA would be uh, superior to fluciclovine moving forward. We just need to make it available, which hopefully we'll be doing in the next year. Um, so this, this study, I think, is really definitive. And the point here, this was done in patients with a PSA less than 2 after radical prostatectomy, so patients with low PSAs. This is where fluciclovine doesn't work as well. I don't know why that slides in there again. So this is one of my favorite cases. This is a patient who underwent definitive radiation therapy and had, in essence, immediate biochemical recurrence afterwards. And you can see this patient had focal uptake right here. This is a, a obturator node or a pelvic sidewall node. And the thing that is disturbing is this node was there, obviously, prior to the definitive radiation therapy. This is the plan that uh, Dr. Fang or one of the radiation oncologists uh, put down. This and, my patient. Yeah, I'm blaming him, though. <laughs> <laughs> this is an Just unknown. To be very clear. <laughs> it would have been nice to know ahead of time that this was actually prostate cancer, right? And so this is the idea that we can use PSMA PET up front to tell you where to aim the radiation therapy. And I think this last slide really sort of gets home the point here. This is PSMA PET done in patients after radical prostatectomy with a PSA less than two. And in these patients, the standard radiation plan would be to radiate the prostate and then hit the pelvic sidewall nodes, right? And we don't know where the disease is when a PSA is this low historically, so this was just the standard plan we would use. And by looking at the PSMA PET, 30% of patients had disease that would have been missed by standard radiation therapy planning. Right? So we didn't know where it was. We missed in 30% of patients. If you look at the outcomes data, the rate of recurrence in patients like this after salvage radiation therapy is about 30%. Right? So radiation therapy works as long as you know where to aim the radiation. Okay? And so this is hopefully where uh, molecular imaging will really help improve the outcomes of patients moving forward by telling where the sites of disease are so that we can treat patients appropriately. So quick summary, conventional imaging is uh, limited for the detection of recurrence. Fluciclovine is FDA approved and widely available and covered by Medicare, which is really important to note. Not everyone can get access to PSMA PET. For example, currently we don't offer it. We'll be hopefully up and running in a couple of weeks, but it's only on trials and hard to get access to. And then PSMA PET, hopefully in about a year, will be uh, FDA approved, and it's very useful, particularly in patients with biochemical recurrence who have low PSAs after definitive radiation or definitive radiation or prostatectomy. Okay, I'll be around during the break for questions. I think we still have time for our questions uh, now. I just want to make a point uh, that you mentioned that about 30% of the time the nodes may be out of the field for planned radiation. The same thing is for upfront patients who present for definitive treatment. Knowing where those nodes are would be a value, whether you're a surgeon or a radiation oncologist. So if there are any additional questions for the, uh, for the um, team here... Matt, uh, uh, so Felix talked a little bit about the use of genomic tests, something we've popularized at UCSF in your practice. When do you use these tests? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We, we, so UCSF was the center where we did the pivotal validation studies that got two of the four on the market, and we've done a lot of work with, uh, with the other two as well. Um, but having you know, helped get them on the market, it's still sometimes unclear even to us here when exactly they have their greatest role. Personally, I tend to use them when I feel like we need a tiebreaker in terms of the decision about whether to treat or put a man on active surveillance. So 
that, and we're going to, of course, talk about active surveillance quite a bit in the next session. Uh, but for men, for example, with higher volume Gleason 3 plus 3 disease, low volume Gleason 3 plus 4, younger men, men who have a lot of anxiety about the decision to not treat the cancer, I think they can be useful. But we're not, do, we're not ordering them routinely. Um, in the post-operative setting, as, as Felix said, the decipher test uh, can be helpful in terms of trying to set a threshold or a thermostat for bringing in adjuvant or salvage radiation therapy. Men with a higher decipher score, we've got some pretty good papers that Felix has led, uh, indicating that for men with high decipher scores, earlier radiation therapy is going to buy a longer survival, a better survival advantage than waiting, whereas for men with a lower decipher score, we can safely wait longer in terms of letting the PSA drift up. Um, and we're also doing it because of all the future information we get about the grid. So one of the nice things about the Decipher platform is as the, the grid report gets updated, we can re-query the same specimen that's been sitting in the archive. We can re-query that man's tumor uh, to learn, you know, in five years we'll have new signatures we can look at and potentially get more information about next lines of therapy. So, you know, so it's, it's you know, marginal cases for surveillance and high-risk cases after surgery in my personal practice. A lot of questions on uh, PSMA PET, some near and dear to our heart, Tom. One is, uh, it, 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 when, why is it taking so long, and uh, when will it be approved? And of course, this is near and dear to our heart because we're, we're bringing um, it to the FDA. That's a great question. <laughs> uh, so we're writing something called a new drug application to the FDA right now, which is something like a 30 or 40,000 page document, which uh, it's only been done once before by an academic institution, uh, so this is not something I have experience with, but I'm gaining my experience. So in the process of preparing our data and doing everything for the NDA, uh, we discovered that we need to go back and clean all of our data appropriately, so we put a pause on all of our enrollment to give us the bandwidth to clean all of our data, which is hundreds, a thousand, over a 1,000 patients of data, and it's taken us many months to do that. We finally finished that yesterday. <laughs> um, then hopefully in about, that, that's not worth clapping for. <laughs> Uh, hopefully in about uh, maybe two weeks from now we'll be done writing the whole document uh, now that we have everything cleaned and then you have to send this document to publishers which uh, are consultants who format it all in this electronic gateway format to send to the FDA so I would say in about a month we'll have submitted the NDA now once you submit the NDA uh, it will take uh, six to nine months depending on whether or not the FDA grants us priority review uh, to get approval of the drug now, then that becomes another question of when is it widely available. So once it's approved by the FDA, it'll be available at UCSF and UCLA. We're collaborating together with two institutions to do the NDA. But then other sites have to submit their own ANDAs, and there's a longer process to make it widely available. But it should take about, uh, you know, nine months from now for UCSF and UCLA to have it FDA approved and available, and then maybe another year after that for it to be more widely available around the United States. I personally take great pride in the fact that UCSF and UCLA are leading the charge on this. We have no financial gain to be made by this. We've devoted uh, substantial resources to getting this through. It has been a game changer for us. Uh, one question here, Tom, again, a lot of PSMA stuff is, what level of post-op PSA should trigger treatment? I think you probably mean of additional evaluation. The level of PSA after treatment depends on how you were treated, the time from initial treatment to detectable PSA and PSA kinetics. But I think the question often becomes is, at which time should I consider getting a uh, PET scan? This question comes up all the time in our practice. I have some thoughts, but Tom, you may want to 
uh, say. So I think Peter's thoughts are maybe more accurate and valuable than my thoughts. Um, my, my general answer to this is there's no one PSA cutoff for an individual patient. Um, it depends on your rate of rise of your PSA. If you're immediately after prostatectomy and your PSA is rising quickly, uh, you should be imaged. Or if you've had a prostatectomy that was undetectable for a very long period of time, you know, those are two very different patients, and the PSA at which you'd want to be imaged would be different. And I think it's important to have people like Peter or the radiation oncologist yeah. uh, decide with you as a patient when it's the right time to image. If you look at sensitivity for PSMA PET imaging, my sense is that uh, uh, certainly after prostatectomy, a PSA of about 0.2 to 0.4 gives you a reasonable chance of identifying the disease. Obviously, the higher the PSA, the more likely it is. And if Tom, if I call correctly in our results, between 0.2 and 0.4, about 45 to 50% of the patients, you'll identify the site of disease. Uh, you were kind of tough on uh, flucyclovine there, Tom. Uh, is, there any, yeah. is, there, is there any value to flucyclovine in patients before treatment currently? We're, we're, we actually are getting some of those tests uh, done. So flucyclovine is superior to the existing imaging modalities like CT or MRI for the detection of disease. Um, but I think it's pretty clear that it will be quickly replaced by PSMA. So flucyclovine is widely available. It's reimbursable. Patients can get access to it anywhere locally here or other institutions. Um, but I think now that we finally have head-to-head -head data, it's actually pretty pretty clear it's not as good as we'd like it to be. But just to jump in and, and emphasize further, Flucyclovine or Aximan, you can get insurance to pay for it. And, and so that. Well, Medicare will. Um, and so, you know, for, for patients who may not be able to pay for pocket, pay out of pocket for PSMA PET, uh, this is quite reasonable. Speaking of that, by the way, there's a bill before Congress as we speak to go after this whole uh, prior authorization uh, mess that affects. All of you, all of us, is a huge barrier. I encourage all of you to write your congressman, get support for this bill. I think it would make all of our lives much better. Uh, Matt, a question again, a patient from Kaiser. Kaiser actually has MR available to them, but the patient's been told that, uh, uh, that they need an MRI, uh, but it sounds like ultrasound may be adequate. So talk a little bit of the issue about MRI receivers, our experience versus others. Yeah, I mean, it all comes down to the quality of the operator, whether we're talking about ultrasound or MRI. Um, we all have the fortune here of being trained by Katsuro Shinohara, who is one of the absolute international gurus, has done tens of thousands of these procedures. Um, and the fact is, with good training, you can see a lot of the prostate cancers on an ultrasound, especially with contemporary equipment. Um, you know, the problem is the field, you know, when you look at the literature and the, the momentum at these meetings, the field is kind of abandoning ultrasound as the diagnostic modality, and the, you know, the, the joke is kind of this is a way to find the prostate, not to find the cancer, and it's really not true. Um, if you know what you're looking for and you know what you're doing, we can see a lot of these, and it's a fairly uncommon case where there's a big, you know, clearly visible tumor on MR that we can't see on the ultrasound if we're, if we're looking carefully. And on the flip side, MR in the right hands at a place like this, and, or, or Stanford, I'd you know, certainly give them credit, uh, you know, they, uh, where we're doing this day in, day out, and you have a relatively limited number of urolog uh, radiologists who are really prostate-focused, they do a good job. But even there, and frankly, we haven't repeated the Stanford analysis here, mostly because I don't think we 
want to know the answer, we see a lot of variation from radiologist to radiologist. Even the NCI, which are the absolute gurus of prostate MR, um, have found very substantial variation in pyrides calls from one to the other. So I think the two work together. I think you need good quality whichever way it is. So if it's a, you know, in Kaiser, like everything else, there's great Kaiser centers, there are smaller Kaiser centers. You know, Kaiser Oakland has a big prostate focus. I don't know much about their radiology, but I assume that they have a pro prostate-focused uh, radiology center there. So you got to make sure that it is prostate focus, that, you've got, that they have radiologists that are really doing this in day in, day out. They certainly have urologists who are trained here. It's pretty much UCSF East. So. It's medical oncologists yeah. Yeah, medical as well, so yeah. there's a great referral. Yeah, radiation oncologists as well. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.